Please turn with me to Luke chapter 19. We read earlier in the service the words from John chapter 12, speaking of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And now I want to read for you another account of the same events from Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. Follow along as I read. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If, if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as, they had, as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, Its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. In August of 1736, Jonathan Edwards... Jonathan Edwards was a pastor and a missionary. Many don't know that about Jonathan Edwards who know anything about him. They don't realize he was a missionary. He was a man who was kicked out of his church in Northampton, uh, Massachusetts. Kicked out of his church for upholding the truth of God ultimately. And he went off to the wilderness of Massachusetts and became a missionary preaching to Indians. And this man, Jonathan Edwards, in August of 1736 preached a sermon called The Excellency of Christ. And his main point in that sermon, preached in August of 1736, is that what what makes Christ glorious, what makes Jesus Christ glorious above anyone else, is what he says he calls an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. Now, what does that mean? An admirable conjunction conjunction of diverse excellencies. It means you see things in Jesus Christ that you normally don't think of as going together. 
When we look at Jesus Christ, we see things that we don't normally fit together in one person, but they come together in one person in the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, in Revelation 5, verse 5, this is the text for the sermon that that, uh, Edwards preached that day. Revelation 5, 5, we read, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered. But in the next verse, in verse 6, we read this, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Jesus Christ is both a lion, He's mighty, fierce, powerful, majestic, and at the very same time, He's a lamb. Meek, gentle, humble. In Jesus Christ, there is both infinite highness and infinite lowliness. He is God. He is infinitely great and high above everything. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is exalted at the right hand of God, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And every knee will bow to Him. But at the same time, He's lowly. He loves the brokenhearted. He draws near to those who are crushed in spirit. He sits down and eats with sinners and prostitutes and outcasts. He comes and He embraces those. He seeks those who are not wise according to worldly standards, who are not powerful, who are not of noble birth. He comes and He embraces what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and what is weak in order to shame the strong. In Jesus Christ, there is both infinite justice and infinite grace. He hates sin. He hates wickedness. And He is the righteous, holy judge of the world and He will not clear the guilty or let any sin go unpunished. And yet, at the very same time, He is filled with mercy and grace. And He comes to seek and to save the lost. He comes to save the chief of sinners. He comes to give sinners life in abundance. In Jesus Christ, we see both infinite majesty and amazing meekness. He is spoken of in Psalm 45, verse 3. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. We read in the next verse, verse 4, it says, In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Majesty and meekness. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His voice is like the roar of many waters. From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. And his face is like the sun shining in full strength. And yet he himself says, come to me. All who are labor and and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus Christ baffled the proud scribes with his wisdom that he was simple enough to be loved by children. In Jesus Christ, we see both supreme dominion. He is the ultimate supreme authority over all things. 
and flawless obedience. He is equal with God. He says, I and my Father are one. He says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And yet he says, I can do nothing on my own. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I have come to do whatever the Father has commanded me to do. In Jesus Christ, we see both complete self-sufficiency and total reliance on God. Jesus says, John chapter 5, As the Father has life in Himself, totally self-sufficient, totally independent of anyone else, as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. He is completely self-sufficient. He stands in need of nothing. Everything is dependent on Him. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. By Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him and He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. He could walk on water He could calm storms with the Word. He could feed thousands of people out of nothing. And yet at the very same time, He's born in a barn. He said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. He owned the cattle on a thousand hills. We read in in Luke chapter 8, that a group of wealthy women provided for Jesus out of their own means. What did Jesus eat? He didn't have anything to eat. Women who were rich paid His way. What Jonathan Edwards said 269 years ago is true. We see the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ when we see this admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies things that we don't normally put together, come together in Jesus Christ. Now, what in the world does that have to do with Palm Sunday? Well, it has everything to do with Palm Sunday. Because this is exactly what we see in Luke 19. We see two things in Jesus Christ that we normally don't put together. Jesus Christ is a king. He is totally sovereign and he is majestic and he's powerful. And at the very same time, he is filled with mercy. He weeps and wails with a genuinely broken heart over people that he knows will reject his kingship. You see, we can, we can deal with one or the other of those things. We can, we can imagine absolute sovereign authority. And we can imagine tender-hearted mercy. But it's hard for us to imagine sovereign mercy or merciful sovereignty. It's hard for us to imagine a sovereign, all-powerful, majestic king weeping over the fate of a city that will soon be destroyed. As a matter of fact, weeping over a city that He Himself will have a hand in destroying. It doesn't make sense to us to put those two things together 
in one person. And so what we tend to do is we tend to separate them. And we tend to think, no, Jesus can only be one or the other, but He can't be both. He can't be the absolute authoritative sovereign King of the universe who rules over all things, who determines the course of the history of the universe, who even determines the details, the minute little details of my life, and even determines the question of who will go to heaven and who will go to hell. He can't be all of that and at the same time be brokenhearted and sorrowful and weeping over a city that He knows will reject Him and will turn against Him and, and will crucify Him five days from now. Our minds can't bend around that. So we tend to ignore one or the other. We either tend to ignore or downplay the sovereign authority and majestic power of Jesus Christ. He is tender-hearted but weak. Or we tend to downplay or ignore the broken-hearted mercy of Jesus Christ. He's strong but heartless. The reality, though, that this passage proclaims to us is that Jesus Christ is powerful and mighty, but not hard. He is merciful and kind, but not powerless. Now, look at this passage with me. Look at Luke 19. Where do we see the power and the authority, this sovereign majesty of Jesus Christ in this passage? We see it in three places at least. First of all, we see it in verses 36 and 37. We see the authority and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, the power of Jesus Christ in verses 36 and 37. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Why are they praising him? They're praising him for all the mighty works that they had seen. These people know who Jesus Christ is. For three years, He has been performing mighty works among them, not off in a closet, not in a corner, not in secret, out in the open, out in public. He has been performing mighty works among them. He's performed mighty works of authority over nature. He stilled the storm with the Word. He fed thousands out of nothing. He walked on water. He caused His fishermen disciples to catch so much fish that their nets started to break and their boat started to sink. And He's done mighty acts of deliverance by casting out demons and showing His authority by casting them out of people who'd been possessed by them. He's performed mighty acts of healing. He cleansed a leper with a touch. He, he healed the centurion's servant with a word from the distance. He healed blind men and lame men and a, and a man with a withered hand and He healed a woman with the hemorrhage of blood. And He has even shown His absolute authority over death itself by raising people from the dead. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He stopped this funeral procession that was coming out of this little village of Nain. The dead man lying on the, on, on the cot. He stops the procession. He raises the widow's son who is on his way to be buried. He raised his friend Lazarus from the dead after he'd been buried for three days. And what we read in John 12 tells us that what the people are thinking when we read this, 
in Luke 19 that they remembered the mighty works that he had done. John 12 says this specifically, they remembered him, his raising of Lazarus. They know who Jesus is. These people who are laying down their coats and making a royal carpet of palm branches for Jesus to ride over knew full well who He is and what He's done. He's the miracle worker. He's the healer. He's the one who who would have no problem whatsoever crushing the whole Roman Empire with one word from His mouth. He is the sovereign ruling King over nature and over demons and over disease and over death. Second, we see the authority and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ in verse 38. The crowds are saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus Christ is the King. He is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the King whom God Himself has chosen and anointed and established as the ruler over all things. He's the one spoken of in Psalm 2. God says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's who's riding into Jerusalem. Jesus Christ is spoken of in Psalm 45. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. That's who's riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Jesus Christ is the one whose kingdom is foretold in in Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jesus Christ is the Lord's anointed King. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom that is backed with the almighty zeal of Almighty God. That is who's riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. So these people are right. These people are right to shout out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Hosanna to the One who comes in the name of the Lord. They're right. Third, we see the authority and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ in verses 39 and 40. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The Pharisees are offended 
They're offended that this crowd would exalt Jesus Christ as the, as the Lord's anointed King, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the one who is worthy of worship. And they say, Jesus, don't you hear what these idiots are saying? They're calling you God. They're praising you as if you were God. Rebuke them. Stop them. What does Jesus say? Oh, yeah, sorry. Right, guys. Yeah, I'm not God. I never claimed to be God. Of course, they're mistaken. I don't deserve to be praised as God. I'm not the King of Israel. You're right. I better shut him up. He says, no, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I am the King Eternal. I am the Sovereign Lord of all the earth. I am the one who upholds the universe by my powerful word. I am the one who spoke the universe into existence. All things were created by me and for me. And in me, everything holds together. And I will be praised. And if these people fail to praise me, then I will make the very rocks that I made cry out in worship. I'm the sovereign king. I'm the sovereign king of the universe. I mean to be worshipped. If you don't praise me, I'll make the stones sing. But I will be worshipped. So does Jesus Christ possess sovereign, almighty, absolute authority over all things? You better believe He does. He's the sovereign King who works mighty wonders, who comes with the authority of the Lord God Almighty, who will be praised by the universe that He has made. But you know what? There are some of you sitting here this morning who refuse to believe that. Some of you think that you are the King of the universe. You think that your plans should, should shape your life. You think that your standards are ultimate. And you even try to hold God accountable for your standards. I don't see why God would give me this burden. God, here's my standard. Here's what you have done. You don't measure up to my standard. Why did you do this to me? I don't see why God would allow that tragedy. I don't see why God would allow a nine-year-old girl in Florida to be, to be killed by an old man. That's not the kind of God that I have. God, if I was God, I would have stopped it. What's wrong with you, God? I don't know why God didn't give me the life that I had scripted out for myself. I knew how my life was supposed to turn out. And it didn't work out the way that I had scripted it. God, what are you doing? I don't know why God would be so narrow-minded and intolerant as to insist that Jesus is the only way to heaven. I don't know why God would give laws and commands and rules that interfere with my rights and my fun and my desires. Who is He to tell me what to do? I know better. I know how the universe should be run. And I don't want this Jesus ruling over me. Maybe you don't say it quite like that. But some of you say that. Now, do you really think 
that you can win that fight. You've pitted yourself against the sovereign master of the universe. You've set yourself in opposition against God. You're facing off with the one who speaks and worlds spring into existence. Who speaks and raises people from the dead. Who made this world and everything in it for His own glory. Who has the right and the authority and the power to give you commands and to enforce them with absolute unfailing justice. Do you really think that you can win that fight? Some of you are sitting there in those chairs saying, yeah, yeah, I think I can win that fight. Piece of cake. On that day that we've read about, John 12, Luke 19, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, He came riding on an animal of peace. He came riding on a donkey. He came riding on a donkey, which is the, the peacetime mount of kings in His day. He was coming to make peace. But the next time that Jesus Christ appears, it will not be as a meek king riding on a peacetime donkey. Revelation 19 tells us what he'll be riding next time. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of, of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You must embrace him now in peacetime. In this time, right now, today, when he is offering to you terms of peace, or you will fall before him in wartime when he comes mounted on a war horse with an army behind him and a, short, a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. You will either bow to Him now with a willing, glad heart beneath His gracious mercy, or you will bow later with a rod of iron on your neck. But be absolutely certain of this, you will bow because He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And right now, this powerful, almighty King is willing and able to use His might and His authority and His power to save you from your sins. He used His power to calm storms. He used His power to feed the hungry, to heal diseases. He used His power to cast out demons. He used His power to raise the dead to life again. And He used this power to absorb God's righteous wrath against the sin of everyone who will submit to Jesus Christ and put all their hopes in Him. So yes, this passage is filled. It's filled with evidence of the kingly, absolute, majestic sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this passage is also filled with mercy. Look at verse 41. Luke 19, 41.
And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. There's coming a day when this city, Jerusalem, will be totally destroyed. And that's exactly what happened 40 years later when the Roman army totally destroys the city of Jerusalem. These tears are real tears. And they're not just little, you know, sparse, light, hardly visible welling up in the eyes. He's not getting teary-eyed. The Greek word here is the word for wailing. He is weeping bitterly. He is sobbing over the fate of the people that he knows will reject him. I said earlier that some of you do not believe that Jesus Christ has sovereign authority over all things. This passage makes it absolutely clear that he does. But others of you do not believe that Jesus Christ is capable of broken-hearted mercy towards sinners. And again, this passage clearly says that He is. His sovereign authority does not make Him hard and unfeeling. And if your mind latches on to this sovereign authority part and makes you then cold and unfeeling and hard, then you don't understand Jesus Christ. His sovereign authority does not make him hard and unfeeling. But his broken-hearted tenderness does not mean that he's weak and powerless. He is the king, but he is filled with tender compassion for sinners like you and me. Come to him and find mercy. When he wept over Jerusalem, he said, "Would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace." What makes for peace is bowing your knee to the King. Jesus is not only majestic in power, He is also filled with the willingness to bend down to you and to embrace you and to help you. Do not reject Him. In Jesus Christ, there meet both infinite strength and infinite gentleness. If you know that you're a sinner, if your heart is sinking under this crushing weight, this fear of God's wrath, if you know that you're a sinner, you know that you have disobeyed God, you know that you've rebelled against Him, you know that you've broken His laws, you have no need to be afraid of running to Jesus Christ. He has everything you need. And He has promised to accept everyone who comes to Him. And if He accepts you, you do not need to be afraid for your safety. He will be a strong lion for your defense. 
And if you come to Him, you don't need to be afraid that He won't accept you. He's like a gentle lamb to everyone who comes to Him. Yes, He is able. And yes, He is willing. Willing to save you from all of your sins. All of them. And He's able and willing to secure for you a place at His side in His kingdom. Come to Him. Come to Him. And to all of you who have come to Him, be like Him. You cannot be like Him in His sovereign, majestic authority, but you can be like Him in His broken-hearted mercy. If our King weeps over those who reject Him, can we stand aloof from them? Our King weeps over people that He knows will reject Him, and we stand aloof from people? If our King's heart is broken over them, can our hearts be hard? Let the beauty of this King Let the beauty of His majesty and the beauty of His gentleness make you gentle and make you tender-hearted towards sinners like He was. Let's pray together and ask Him to help us.